0: You're listening to the Beaver Tales podcast, which features exclusive interviews with former Oregon State student athletes. We talk about what they did at OSU, what the transition was like away from college athletics, and what they're passionate about now. Here's a little taste of what's coming up on this episode.
1: In the midst of such hardships, it's almost like you're going through the motion, you're just having to tell yourself he's going to take care of you. He's done it in the past. He'll do it again. And it's almost like just over and over and over again, just trying to reassure yourself because in the midst of it, you're just buried and you just don't know.
0: That's coming up on this episode. Now I use this podcast to give free advertising to charities. So to hear about a great nonprofit you can support, stay tuned to the end of this episode. This is the Beaver Tales Podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State athletics since 2013. Joining me today on the podcast is a two sport athlete, Jean Roselle. Or back when she competed for the Beavers, Jean Lee. She competed for OSU in the mid 80s, first gymnastics, spent a couple years there, and then switched to triple jump on the track and field team. Very interesting athletic career for Jean Roselle. We talk some about her time at OSU, but also a lot about adversity since OSU, health struggles, financial struggles, how she pulled through, how her faith, how her family, her husband, Mark, helped through that process and where she's at now. Geographically, where she's at now is Texas, but personally where she's at, well, just listen to the episode and you'll learn all about Jean Roselle. Real quick before we get to this conversation, a quick word from Lamplight Creatives, which is a full-service creative agency offering total solutions for marketing, branding, and promotional needs. A lot of businesses who are waiting for the pandemic to be over at some point are now realizing they must pivot into the digital scape or they may not survive. Since March, Lamplight Creatives has been busy with website builds, creating content for digital ads and campaigns, helping develop online courses or stores. Whether your business is selling things online or just needs an improved digital presence, Lamplight Creatives can help your business be more easily found on Google searches and everywhere across the internet. If you go to lamplightcreatives.com, and there's a link in this description, you can request a consultation. Lamplight Creatives, one stop for all your creative needs. All right, I'm excited to share this conversation with Gene Rosell. Quick shout out to Randy Law who connected us. Randy comes up briefly in this conversation, so I'm thankful to connect with this former two sport athlete at Oregon State. Here is former Beaver two sport athlete, Gene Rosell. Thanks for joining me, Gene, on the podcast from Dallas. How are you doing today, and how's the family?
1: Family's great. It's great weather here. I don't know what it's like in Oregon, but it's it's like mid 60s here, so it's pretty nice.
0: It'll be fun to chat both about playing two sports at Oregon State and a lot of stuff since then. How did you even end up at Oregon State, considering you had lived in half the countries in the U.S. before, then starting in West Virginia, bouncing all around? What what were the states that you lived in before Oregon State, and or then how did Oregon come into play?
1: So I was born in West Virginia, lived in Hawaii. Uh, for a while and then uh, my dad he was a a doctor so he uh took a job in um Memphis then so we from Hawaii moved to Memphis Tennessee and were there for four years and then I um then he was thinking about moving to uh Oregon but my mom told him he needed to find a gymnastics place for me there so he found the National Academy down in Eugene Oregon so um I ended up moving out there and lived away from home for like three years at national Academy.
0: Wow. So you end up going to Oregon state. How would mm-hmm. you summarize what your expectations were coming in? You ended up playing a sport that you didn't come in expecting to play necessarily. Cause you started in gymnastics, ended in track and field. Uh, when you think about your time at Oregon state, how, how would you summarize that?
1: Um, I guess starting um, going to college and stuff. It was it's not like it is now or was for, or you know for my kids or whatever. And um, I didn't really like as far as gymnastics. I had quit gymnastics when I was a junior in high school, so I really didn't think about doing it in college. And then probably my senior year, I was like, oh, it would be fun to get back in shape and try and you know walk on or whatever. So I did that. And at the time, Morgan State had a camp, um, so I went to the camp. And there was like the coach from UW was there and kind of from all over the place. And they were like, oh my gosh, why didn't you tell us that you were getting back in the sports? We could have offered you scholarships, but I just, it didn't really cross my mind. So anyway, just, I had a, my roommate ended up going to that camp and then deciding, okay, I'm just going to go down to Oregon state. So um, it was close. My parents at the time were in Portland. So it was nice. So
0: then how did you go from gymnastics, kind of doing all around a little bit to all of a sudden going to track and field? How did that come up?
1: So I honestly got tired of like in gymnastics, especially back then they were all about your weight and, you know, kind of controlling that. And so I sort of rebelled and just went the other direction and just gained a bunch of weight (laughs) instead. And then I just got tired of just all the pressure all the time. So I was like, you know what, I'm just, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. So I quit that and then thought, oh, well maybe I'll try track and field. So I did triple jump for, I can't remember if it was just a year or if it was two years, I can't remember.
0: That seems to be a much more common conversation now in gymnastics is how much uh, almost controlling some academies are around the U.S. and some coaches Mm -hmm. that get really, you know, overbearing and, and over controlling at that point in the 80s. What what was that like for you?
1: I mean, it was tough. I mean. When I was down at the National Academy, it, it was always an issue. Like, you know, they'd weigh you all the time, see where you, um, you know, they wanted you at a certain weight. And I was always a little taller. I was probably like five, four or so. And everybody else was like under five foot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I always like, I was always the heaviest one. I was more muscular. And so um, anyway, that. It was tough. And I remember when, we came, when I came to Oregon State, they did a underwater weighing. So they would weigh so you could tell what your body percent fat was or whatever. And the coach at the time uh, was like, oh, if you just got down, you know, so many more pounds, then you would be like Olympic competing weight. And I just like rebelled and went the other direction. <laughs> it was just, I don't know. I for whatever reason I had a hard time with somebody saying you need to weigh this much, you know, you can't do things because you're too fat or whatever. So.
0: Was your initial reaction just to, I mean, what what was it next? I mean, you just didn't care about your weight, but stayed on the team for a little while or what, what was the next couple months like?
1: I mean, I, I mean, I still did stuff, but I think I was probably heavier than I probably should have been. Um, But. I don't know. I mean, I I still love gymnastics. I loved all, you know, the compete. I, I guess I like the working out and just accomplishing things better than I did the competing part of it. Um, I like that aspect of it. And I still like I loved that, but I just was tired of the pressure about the weight and yeah. things. So
0: did track and field end up being a place where you could I don't know, it it worked better for you where you didn't have to rebel in terms of some of the things in gymnastics you did and you were able to just put your effort into track and field in a more full, complete way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I actually ever felt like I really fit into that whole track scene or whatever, but it gave me something to do and it gave me um, community and had friends. You know, I kept a lot of friends from uh, gymnastics, but then also um, had a lot of friends in the track and field area as well. So I guess a sense of belonging, you know, being able to hang out with people and, you know, felt like you had a purpose doing things, so.
0: When you finished your time at Oregon State, graduated in elementary education, uh, you met your husband there, Mark, there at, at OSU. At that point, what were your expectations of life post-college, the things that you thought might be beneficial and exciting, the things that you might thought be difficult? At that point, what did you anticipate?
1: Um, I mean, I always wanted a family, And I think we wanted to start a family fairly young. Um, So actually after we got married, uh, I graduated in 86 and I think I graduated and then went back and did like student teaching in the fall. And then that next spring of 87, we ended up getting married. Um, And so I thought you know, I would teach or whatever, but we would probably start a family within the year. And actually probably three months after we were married, I got pregnant with my oldest.
0: Wow, three months in. So at at that point, when you're finishing OSU, you're starting your family, were you 100% healthy, no real issues at that point?
1: Yeah, I I would say that I was pretty healthy. I had taken up uh, running quite a bit too, uh, just, you know, for exercise here and there. I remember I, I kind of took it up when I was at Oregon State just to kind of keep my weight down, you know, if I overate or whatever, but, uh, but in ended up getting into running quite a bit um, after we were married, you know, did some of the fun runs or competitions, ended up doing a, um, one of my life goals was to do a marathon <laughs> well, on my bucket list. So I did that, I guess, yeah, um, I guess when we moved to Virginia is when I did that, but
0: so then when were the first uh, signs of some, some health issues and you start to realize, oh, gosh, I, I don't have my my old college, you know, I can do whatever I want. And I'm, a, I'm an athlete and college athlete. When did you start to get some of the diagnoses or the issues that uh, became more and more serious?
1: Um, actually, like I there was nothing. There were no warning signs. There was nothing going on. Um, like I said, I ran quite a bit um, throughout our, throughout our whole married life or whatever, um, did runs here and there, did a marathon when we lived in Virginia. And just, I, I mean, we went, we went down to our lake house, um, Lake Granberry, and uh, I guess, for fourth of July and my oldest daughter's birthday. And then that's when I just woke up one morning and I was seeing double. And I went out and told my husband, I said, you got to take the dog. I like, I'm seeing double. I need to go back to bed. So went back to bed. And um, when I woke up again, he was like asking me questions that were, you know, I thought I was answering them really normally, but I was saying some weird things. My kids noticed I was saying some weird things, having, uh, having issues with dates and, um, like places and just remembering some things like that. And, um, so really didn't like, I mean, it was pretty sudden. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, I guess we went to a doctor down there, like the second day or whatever, or actually went to Fort Worth for that and then came back and they were just like, Oh, you're dehydrated. There's nothing really wrong with you. You're just dehydrated. So my husband's traveling the next week and said, Hey, I want you to go to the primary care doctor. So I went to the primary care doctor and the primary care was like, okay, let's get an MRI. So as soon as I got the MRI, they noticed that, uh, that I had had a recent stroke and then, uh, it showed too that I had had strokes, you know, in the past, like little dead spots, on you know my brain or whatever. But this one was more significant to where, like, I can't remember any of the other ones, like if anything happened or whatever. But um, this one, there was a difference, uh, for sure. My husband would ask me, "Hey, where do you want to go to lunch?" and I could like view it in my head, but I couldn't come up with what the word was or whatever and have to look at my phone look at the map and go and that's where I want to go you know find the name of the place that way.
0: Did that end up being the most serious issue or are there any other stuff over the years that followed that up or as far as your health now these days what what what's the in that area?
1: Uh, no I would say for the most part I was I, I've been pretty healthy. Um, I would probably still consider myself fairly healthy just this Issue with uh, my heart when they, you know, found the hole there um, and stuff. But when we went to Mayo Clinic, they, the doctor up there was like, um, he says, I think this is your issue because they they did a bunch of tests like this where they went through my esophagus and and then like somehow did these bubbles that would go to my heart and then they would go directly to my brain because of the hole that was there. Um, and so they were like, yeah, you just, you need to get this fixed, get this hole fixed, And that should um, fix everything. And the doctor that actually closed the hole up said, I've, you know, he'd done like up at Mayo Clinic, he had done like a couple hundred of those already. And he said he is, he had not had anybody stroke after having had that procedure done. So Anyway, um, and just the last probably, I mean, it was two years, two, two and a half years ago that it happened and probably the first year, um, there there was a lot of recovering. I did some, there there wasn't huge, like people that didn't know me well, couldn't notice anything different, but like my husband just being close to me and my kids and some close friends were like, they noticed a little bit of a difference. Um, And just now I would say uh, working through um, those things, I've, I kind of have this new normal, I guess, Um, as I don't know if you've ever, this is kind of a a tangent, you can erase this or whatever, but uh, there, I don't know if you have any Asian friends, but like if they drink, do they turn red?
0: I guess I've never noticed that, but
1: I don't know. Like, well, with Randy Law, try with him, but like, they call it kind of an Asian flush or whatever. And actually I think what it is, there's some enzyme or something that a lot of Asians don't have, and it doesn't break down the alcohol as well. So I remember in college, people would be like, oh, let's go get Jean a uh, wine cooler and watch her turn red. Cause I would just like turn super, super red. Well, since the stroke, um, I like I have a, a even a, like I had a low tolerance anyway to begin with, but now I have even a lower one. So, like, I've passed out a couple times where, like, one time we went to a wedding, I had gone for a run and then hadn't really eaten anything. So, I was a little dehydrated, hadn't eaten anything. And I had one of those small glasses of wine and totally passed out this was after the stroke and so my husband was worried so we went to the hospital you know figured all that out they said you're totally everything's fine everything's normal but just went through the whole cycle of visiting all those doctors again just to make sure well it happened again just uh it was my friend's birthday and we'd gone out to dinner I'd gone for a run again so I'm like realizing oh okay running and drinking that doesn't work (laughs) but um I never like, I I don't drink much anyway, but I, um, there's uh, Tex Mex places around here that are awesome, but they have these like margaritas and like I had a third of it, a third and passed out. So it's just, so I'm learning like, okay, my new normal is I can't run and then drink, you know, so like I can have like, I'll have a little bit of wine here and there. Like last night I had a little glass of wine, was totally fine, but I think there's a combination and a new normal that I have to kind of account for for after the stroke.
0: Especially early on when you got the diagnosis, you had not just one stroke, but you realized you'd had a lot of strokes. You, you find out you have a hole in your heart and things like that. Did you ever ask why me? Like I've been so healthy. I was a collegiate athlete. Why is this happening to me? Any of those sort of questions?
1: Um, I don't think that I really asked those questions. But I mean, it was weird because I was like, I've been pretty athletic my whole life. I did gymnastics my whole life. <clears throat> um, then did college gymnastics and then did track and field. And you would have thought that it would have come up earlier and it just never did. And then, I mean, I just feel blessed that, you know, who I'm married to. Oops who I'm married to, he's very much of, um, he's like, no, like you are so healthy. We, this, is, this is weird. This is not a normal thing because there's a lot of doctors that were, like my primary care doctor at first, he was like, well, you know, some people stroke, they just have strokes and that's what happens. Mark's like, no, like she's got super low blood pressure. She's got this, she's got, you know, <clears throat> there are no signs that's, that point to the fact that she should stroke, there's something else going on. And so we ended up like, I'd go to two neurologists, I go to two cardiologists, cause he was like, so determined, we're gonna figure this out. We're gonna figure out what is going on cause there's something that's not normal. Um, so I feel really blessed that he's in my life <laughs> because I mean, at the time I wasn't in a state to be able to figure it out and honestly you take you like if a um, somebody from the medical field or whatever tells you well it's kind of this this or that you know you just go oh okay you know you don't really fight it or whatever but he was like no this is not normal this we're going to figure this out so
0: Speaking of your husband, it was around 2007, where he started a new industry, building homes, selling homes, that sort of thing. And it was right before the, the great recession of 08. Yes. So you go to some, you go for some health stuff that you had handled a lot of your adult life, and then some other adversity in a different area of life. How did you well, handle all
1: that was before? Oh, okay. So
0: gotcha. That was
1: before when he was, uh, he was He's an engineer, and then he went um, into home building. And then, um, basically, there was, um, I'm trying to think who we had the loans with, but one of the banks we had these loans with, and uh, it's like something that's on every sheet, like if you sign a, you know, if you close on a house or whatever, <clears throat> But basically just, you know, it had this underlying message, you know, saying, okay, well, if you, you know, we have the right to do this, 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 and this, you know, call the loans and all this stuff. And he's like, well, wait a minute. What is, you know, what is all this? And they're like, oh, it's just wording we put in there, that stuff. Like the whole banking system would have to fail in order for us to do that. And that's what happened. So they called all their loans. We had, you know several million of loans like with property and stuff like that and building homes. And they called their loans in 30 days. And at the time nobody was refinancing. So it was like, you know, what do you do? Like you have no other choice. So we ended up having to file for bankruptcy. And then he was at the at a place where he was like, I, I don't think I'll live through this. This is just like took a real big toll on him. But then, when he looked at the, you know, fine print, basically it says if you pass away, then all this debt will be passed on to your your wife, your kids, whatever. So he would, you know, he had to work his way out of that. So it was a crazy, crazy time, but God was faithful in all of that and um, brought us through it. Wish it never happened, but you know, stuff like that does makes you stronger, but it's tough.
0: Yeah. How did you handle that when he's not even sure if he's going to make it out, not just financially, but, but just physically not going to make it out because of that. How did you handle that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a tough time for sure. It was, um, I kept in my head. I was like, I know, like, I just need to lean on the Lord. I need to, you know, that's where, you know, our strength is. And, and in the midst of such hardships, it's almost like you're just, you're going through the motion. You're just having to tell yourself, he's going to take care of you. He's done it in the past. He'll do it again. And it's almost like just over and over and over again, just trying to reassure yourself because in the midst of it, you're just buried and you just, you just don't know, you know, it's, it's tough for sure.
0: I know this is more of a personal question, so feel free to share however much you want, but would you say your marriage ended up stronger now than it was before? Or how did that impact that element of your marriage?
1: Yeah, I would say that it is it is stronger now. I remember in the midst of all that, I had a close friend that she would just say to me, she goes, don't get divorced over this. Don't get divorced over this. And I mean, it seemed weird, but I think she had seen... Uh, financial issues like that affect people, you know, in a poor way. Um, and so she was just like, you know, just, just don't get divorced over it or whatever. But, um, it was good because like at first it was really tough and I think he was in a tough spot. So it was hard for him to communicate or whatever, but, um, we just kept plugging along together at it and eventually, got to a a much better place, Um, and then we, you know, we met some great, when we moved here to Dallas, we met some great people, Um, and my my son was going to public school at the time and came home, and he was like, I feel like God's calling me to go to, there's this high school near us called Liberty Christian High School, and we're like, what? (laughs) And so he was like, yeah, I really want to go look at it or whatever, so we went there, And um, it was like, I, when we'd go in, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like we're home. Like these, these are all our type of people or whatever. And then I'd leave and I'd go, what are we thinking? Like, why, like, I don't get, you know it was like $16,000 a year. And it was like, we don't have that kind of money to do that or whatever. But we just kept following it and had a meeting with the headmaster and the head told him the story and said, You know, Mitchell feels like God's calling him to this and we're like, he goes, well, has God ever spoken to him like that before? And we were like, "Mm, no, not that we know of. And he was like, well, I would listen to that. My husband was like, well, yeah, but $16,000 a year, that's, you know, and what we've just gone through, I, I can't see that. If it was college, that's a different thing, but for high school, that's, you know, a whole different story. And basically through our meetings with him, he came to us and he goes, well, I feel like I do feel like, uh, the Lord is calling Mitchell here and, uh, we want, we want him here. So you tell us what you can afford and we'll make it work. And then my husband was like, well, what if I lose my job? I don't want to be transferring him all over the place. And they're like, if you lose your job, you tell me you've lost your job. He comes for free. When you get your job back, you know, then you can, we'll figure something out. So we were like, okay, I guess God was calling you there. I don't, you know, but, um, I would say that the bankruptcy was probably the worst, probably one of the worst things in our whole life, but some of the things that came out of it were so amazing and just showed God's faithfulness that were, um, it was really cool
0: this might be my my last question for you since if you compare the the dire straits and the the difficulty in handling you know financial craziness in 08 and some health stuff that was kind of surprising for a while but now now it's you know far away from 2008 now you're relatively healthy and so it, it's at least generally a more smooth time for you at least in some areas how compared to how you handled the adversity and how you stuck it through how you you know weathered the storm how does that compare to how you live now where it's maybe not quite as much adversity although I'm, I know I'm generalizing and and you can you know whatever other stuff there may be going on is it easy to i don't know get complacent when life isn't as hard or maybe those lessons stuck with you and you you still are always grateful now even when it's not as difficult you always remember the things you learned in the difficult times i mean how how does that work for you when you kind of get past the storm a little bit
1: um i think that uh i'm glad i'm not in the storm for sure and i do feel like there's a um I mean, sometimes I feel like you're almost waiting for the next shoe to drop a little bit. You're a little worried, but it also, I I feel like having been through, you know, a couple big things like that, um, it gives you just comfort in knowing that, like, you know, you can look at that and say, God brought us through that. You know, and that was huge. He's going to bring us through. So I, I feel like I think that life sometimes can be crappy. There's some crappy things that happen. And um, but if you cling to uh, God and what, you know, and it, I think to a degree, it sort of makes it easier because you see what he's done in the past. And then, you know, so that you can hold on to that for the future. Um I think it's helped us in uh, just like teaching our kids too, that, you know, you're not promised roses, you know, there's going to be adversity. There's going to be tough times. There's, um, but you know, one, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. And he's going to be right there beside you the whole time. There's a saying my husband says all the time. He said it at Again at uh, my daughter's wedding, but uh, basically says in this family, God's got your future, but we've got your back. So you know we'll we'll help you out where we can. But you know God's got your future; He's going to take care of you. But we've got your back. So that's kind of a fun fun little thing that he's always said to the kids.
0: Well, I really like the conversations with athletes or people in general where they overcame some really serious personal difficulties, no matter what it was that got them through. To me, that's always a fixating conversation to have. And for Jean Roselle, it was a lot of health issues and a lot more. And and it seems like she's doing very well and, and has a great family to surround herself with. And that's the kind of the thing that I want to do more on this podcast is not just Recap what someone has done since their time at OSU, and talk about each of the things that they've done, but exactly what they've learned, what they're passionate about, the things that they may know that not everyone has experienced to the degree they have, and what makes them so special. The things that they know uh, very intimately. So, hope you enjoy these conversations on the Beaver Tales podcast. Real quick, if you do like this podcast, please check out Food for the Hungry. They're a charity I like to support. They do a lot of amazing work around the world. They have kids you can sponsor for uh, not very much financial donation, but the money goes a long way in helping support families all around the world gain education and access to resources they wouldn't otherwise have. So check out Food for the Hungry at FH.org. That's FH.org. Next up on the Beaver Tales podcast, I've got Marcus McMarion. I'm moving this episode up a day on Wednesday to get ahead of Thanksgiving a little bit. Uh, Marcus McMarion, former Oregon State quarterback, will talk about. Uh, his win over Oregon, the last time that Oregon State has beaten Oregon in football was when Marcus McMahon was the starting quarterback in 2016. So that episode will come out Wednesday. Then his fellow quarterback, Daryl Gerritsen, will follow him next week on Monday. I've also got Seth Peach, Oregon State baseball player, coming up next week as well. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Beaver Tales podcast. Stay tuned Wednesday for an early holiday edition with marcus mcmarion that's all on the beaver tales podcast i've been your host josh warden good night everybody and go bees